Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Today on the pod, we have Tara Tatras Whitehill, an award-winning visual storyteller and communications consultant. Her clients include people like the New York Times, UNICEF, Search for Common Ground, Girl Effect, and a ton of others. She's a passionate storyteller and is passionate about helping people elevate their skills so they can make the most powerful impact. So hey, Tara, thanks for being on the pod. Hello. I am very excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, I love anything creative, anything visual. So this is probably going to be one of my favorites so far. Off the Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit more about visual storytelling, what it is and why it's important? People think visual storytelling, it makes sense. The name, the words is like, oh, visual storytelling, I get it. I, uh, I don't need an explanation, but actually it does still because it's more than what you think. Uh, it is photos and video, of course, because that is obviously what we used to think of initially, but there's so much more. Um, it can be animations, data visualizations, microsites, and all of our social platforms. I mean, everything that we use on a daily basis uh, to communicate is visual and it is storytelling. So um, that's a really important thing to understand is like it's this huge ecosystem. Um, and, you know, we have to make sure that we're using all of those different assets to get our best stories out there. Yeah. And I love that you called out all the different ways that visual storytelling is accessible, really. I think people think about visuals and think you need to have a fancy camera or all these different fancy programs to edit and whatever. But your Instagram page is your own visual storytelling in a way. Yeah. And we all have to do it every day and get out there and communicate our message to the people that we care about. And like, that's why visual storytelling is so important because like, we're doing it even if we're not necessarily doing it well. So, you know, we, we can do it and give ourselves like a better way to d actually like impact our audience, then we can go really far. Yeah, definitely. I'm wondering if you had like an aha moment when you knew that you wanted to work in visual storytelling, uh, specifically with nonprofits and social impact groups too. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, I've always been, I've, I have a specific passion in women's issues mm -hmm. and being able to give voice to stories that don't always get as much attention and to break down stereotypes. Um, but I didn't have a background in uh, storytelling. I actually went to school for engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so at the time I was doing some like just little classes on photography Mm -hmm. um, and I just recognized at some point that I really loved being able to tell people about, you know, other things that they didn't understand and to give them that education and communication with people all around the world. So it was in college uh, when I was still in engineering school that I decided I didn't want to be an engineer, <laughs> but I finished that degree anyway, and then I moved back to New York City and I started working 
uh, mm -hmm. as an assistant. Um, but the aha moment about where I wanted to focus in terms of NGOs and helping with social impact organizations came a little bit later, uh, just as I was focusing on a women's project about women's activists. And um, it was very important to me personally, the project, and it was something that I cared deeply. I wasn't trying to get a job out of it. And mm -hmm. it really, it, the way that, because I was putting myself out there and really giving it all of my passion, people responded so deeply to it that I just realized that, you know, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do, you know, journalism and photojournalism and visual storytelling so that I could really help these stories get more exposure. Um, and so that's kind of where I took it from there. And then um, I, I left the country essentially to focus more on work uh, abroad. And, uh, and so I've been you know, doing work in the US and also in the Middle East and Europe and Africa now for over 15 years. Wow. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Makes me feel old. <laughs> um, awesome. That's that's really an amazing story. And I love that you started as an engineer. I feel like people always kind of fall into the things that they love. Um, so if there are any engineers out there, you don't have to yes, say an engineer. <laughs> you don't have to. Although when I was doing it, there was a lot less nice opportunities for engineers mm. than there are now there's still there seems to be a lot of amazing things that you can do with engineering that i wasn't aware of cool and i'm wondering about the things like what are the things that you look for to produce a powerful story are there certain stories that you think are better to be told visually um or certain stories that you think just wouldn't work for visual at all you know i have yet to come across a story that wouldn't have some help with visuals. It just has to be creative sometimes about what you're doing. Um, you know, I had a, um, so I started off as a photographer and then I had a creative agency for six years uh, where we did a lot of interactive projects for large NGOs uh, like the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank, uh, IRC, Amnesty, those kind of places. And a lot of times people would come to us with a very dense report and say, how do we visualize this and make it something that more than 10 people will read? Uh, and so it was our job to kind of see the stories within. So I think the first thing that I always look for in a, uh, in a story is what is the, what's the, the human narrative? Like mm -hmm. where can we go where we see someone that we can relate to? And that that kind of helps us like guide the process because if we're talking to someone and then we see them and we relate, then you have someone's attention because you want to know their story and you want to understand it. So I always try to see what's like, what is the human aspects of the stories, even if it's a large data-driven report that otherwise, you know, doesn't have a lot in it. There's always something that you can draw out of that. So my skills are like about seeing that and kind of making it more user-friendly, I guess. Um, and, and sometimes that means like coming to something and being like, well, uh, maybe you thought you had something that would be photo and video driven, but you don't really have those that are high enough quality. So what mm -hmm. can we do with like, you know, a microsite, a data visualization and animation um, mm -hmm. that can do that. So like, you know, 
sometimes we'd create a game, an interactive game for people, um, or, you know, like kind of do an animation to understand this stuff or illustrations. So there's a lot that you can do to make a powerful story. And I think it's just a matter of thinking outside the box and honing those skills every time. Like if you, if you want to do a little exercise for this, like if you see a, uh, you know, not your stuff, because it's always harder to do your own stuff. But if you see a large essay, let's say, and doesn't have a photo or a video attached, just think to yourself, like, what could this do if it had a visual? Like, what would this visual, would I do? And if you think about that long enough, and you sort of like, it's almost like a, a muscle that you're building, then you'll be able to understand, like, just kind of like get it very quickly, like, oh, that would be helped with a data visualization or, you know, it'd be nice to see an animation of this, even if it was a short one, like mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So then you kind of like can start thinking about those things as you're trying to like build your skills. And that takes no time because we're all reading this stuff online. So you can do that like daily. Yeah. And I love that kind of human aspect to it. I think oftentimes when you think, especially about data visualization. It's like just a bunch of numbers that don't really, could really mean anything, you know, like you don't really feel a connection to it. Um, but I think the great thing about data visualization and even some of the work that we do here at Whole Whale is that we always try to connect it back to the impact that it makes. Um, mm -hmm. So if we see a pie chart or like, I don't know, a graph of some sort, um, you always try to tie it back to what impact is this making on person A or person B? Yeah, absolutely. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grant, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. I think we could talk about visuals all day, <laughs> but I think the real value is seeing them and seeing the different aspects. Um, so if you're listening to this episode with only audio, check out our YouTube channel where you can see all the visuals um, and we'll also link them down below so you can follow along as well. So let's dive right into the visuals, Tara. I know you have some prepared. Um, so I yeah. just wondering about some of your favorite pieces of work that you produced what makes them your favorite? Um, well, I'll share two uh, photo things that I did. Uh, yeah. I won't, the, for the NGOs, typically I don't own the photos because mm -hmm. they're uh, owned. So I don't want to share that. So that if it's online, that's fine. But uh, I'll show you uh, two photo essays that I did for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And then the latest uh, project that I worked on to help do storytelling with Girl Effect, which is uh, an amazing organization uh, that works with adolescent girls all around the world. Am I sharing my screen? Yes, you are. So this is a photo story I did for the New York Times in Sierra Leone. Mm. And it's the story was that um, it was about the Ebola lockdowns, kind mm. of now <laughs> seems to be very relevant with our current pandemic. But in Sierra Leone, they had 
not as many cases as they did before, but they were still under strict um, rules from the government. So like businesses um, had to be closed down early and people couldn't really go around. And uh, this was about um, a nice little story, just kind of visualizing issues that appear because of Ebola. This uh, man, he, um, he was a Ebola survivor and uh, he had um, lost 40 of his family members to wow. Ebola in Kenema, which is one of the epicenters. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and his mom had survived, but most of his immediate family had died. And one of the things that happens with Ebola is that there's a lot of stigma associated with survivors and people mm-hmm. thinking that you could still get sick or not to touch them. So he created a football club for his community so that Ebola survivors could come out and uh, do a sport and be supported by the community. And so obviously comes from very uh, poor surroundings. So I wanted to show his environment. Um, And that's like his, one of his extended family members is little children that are around. Um, And then just kind of like giving a sense of the environment that he was in. I chose to do it in black and white because I felt like the colors were a bit distracting and it was a very visual piece. So um, I kept it very simple that way. And then when they arrived and a nonprofit came to give them t-shirts and um, so it was a practice match, but they were wearing these t-shirts that said the Ebola survivors football club and Arison who's on the left, he was like their referee. Um, and he so but it was uh it was even more visual because like it was literally on their t-shirts what they were so um this photo essay and this is like the people cheering them on in the community um and like it was uh also almost dark and no light and uh so it came nicely with like the black and white because it gave it kind of like an old grainy mm-hmm. feel um with it and like, you know, focusing on the camaraderie and people coming together as the community was really important. And this photo essay won a World Press Photo Award um, Mm. in a couple of years ago. So it was, I mean, people really, I think, responded to it because it was empowering. And Mm. I always like to show empowering photo essays because that's really important to my work is like, you know, giving that kind of people who are changing their lives and changing their communities is really important. And I try to always focus on those kind of positive stories as well. So that's one. Yeah. I love that. Um, Especially the empowerment piece. I feel like oftentimes when we see these kind of photo essays, especially abroad, it can kind of paint a negative or a sad picture of how um, people are living abroad. It's true. And I think that that's part of why I focus on like really making sure that I'm giving their voice authenticity and really just trying to show who they are. Um, And as, and this is a second um, photo essay, which was harder to shoot in a lot of ways because this is about women and children who've been returning from ISIS families. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them didn't want to be visualized. So I thought I would show this because sometimes you have to get really creative 
about how you're showing people's, um, you know, their human aspects, even if you can't focus on their faces. So like, and also gaining their trust is really important. And when I work with NGOs, obviously the first thing you want is never to do any harm. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that you're, uh, you know, that nothing that you're doing is going to hurt the organization or the subjects because yeah. that's like the key thing to it. So it's always important to like feel like the subjects are comfortable in that context and that they understand that they're not going to, you know, be um, put in on display if they're, if they're uh, you know, at danger, their family's in danger, whatever it is that they don't want to reveal. Um, so it was careful to make sure that, you know, people who didn't want their faces covered, faces shown were covered, mm-hmm. but also to like try to do that in a way that didn't make it look like I was doing that. Yeah. So, you know, you didn't want to focus on the fact that they were hidden, but just kind of find creative ways to go about it. And the kids, um, you know, were amazing because like they were obviously all over the place and that was easier to deal with. Um, yeah. yeah. And just giving like a sense of place uh, in this like rehab center that mm. they were in. Uh, in this was in Kazakhstan. So, and I some of the women won't let me take their photos, and I had to make sure that you know they were they were okay with that. Um, but like just finding creative ways to use reflections and things like this. Mm. Um, and and this is the second part where it was in Turkey. Uh, and it was only kids that were being allowed home from families of ISIS. Um, but again, it was, uh, like using reflections. I'm not sure how easy it is for you to see this one, but just like, this was like a, the kid was allowed home, but not the mom and the sister was still there. So I tried to use the reflections in the mirror to kind of give like a ghostly feel to something like someone not being there. And here it was the little boy on the left who they didn't want his face being shown. So everyone else was okay with their faces. So I tried to show their playing, but without showing his face Mm -hmm. and, you know, just like making it not the focus uh, that his face wasn't being shown, but like, you know, the toy truck in front of his face, that kind of thing. Cause kids are great at always just like going around and using stuff. Yeah. Um, And this is a little girl, same thing. But yeah, it was like just trying to get parts of her environment, her teddy bears, her dolls, um, showing who she is without, uh, you know, showing her face. And this was like the end of the photo shoot and she was done with me and she was looking on her iPad. But again, like it made for a good moment in terms of that. And that's actually the picture that made the front of the New York Times. Wow. So, um, so yeah, that was... uh, that was a good story to to show like the issues that happen when, you know, families, some parts of families are coming home, but others aren't. Um, and then the final thing I wanted to show you was uh, this um, is a project. I did not do the media for this project. Girl Effect has this uh, as an organization, as I said, that does, girl, this is voices.girleffect.com dot org for those of you not um watching this visually but you can also find it on the show notes um that but uh it's um so girl effect has this program called tegas which is tech enabled girl ambassadors Mm. and they've trained girls 
all over the world to be researchers, to go out in the communities and, you know, when they have questions about nutrition or wash, that they can interview people and give them like real time interviews on the ground, give them videos and things like that. But with the pandemic, Mm. obviously, they couldn't really do that. So they asked them to uh, do their own stories. So uh, they, they went and every week, they would ask them different questions and then put together um, their videos about their responses. And it's very powerful because it's over three continents and, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, and it's all their stories, all their first voices. So each yeah. one every week has a video attached and you can go see the girls. But when they came to me, they weren't exactly sure what they wanted to do or how they wanted to do it or present it. And mm -hmm. so we kind of came up with this concept of like a humans of New York meets National Geographic. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a very light site. It's very easy to load, which means that you can see it all around the world. It's very intuitive. I mean, UX design is obviously an important part when you're kind of talking about storytelling on yeah. microsites. And so like things like this, and you can just see all of like the stories for one girl or. I'm know, sorry, Tara. I think the screen is frozen. Okay. So is that better? Yeah, much better. Great. Okay. So each girl, you can see her stories and every mm -hmm. week her issues and you can load it by theme. Um, and it's just, it's a very easy site to navigate and it's educational and it's for, you know, news organizations to see as well as for NGOs who might want to partner with Girl Effect and do similar work. Um, so it's really, um, I'm very proud of being a part of this project, but they did some amazing work in terms of getting all these media assets, um, mm -hmm. you know, before I even, I even started. So I was just helping them to hone what they were doing and how they were doing it. So, um, so yeah, so like that's the, uh, so those are the three projects that, um, that I, I would wanted to share with you. Yeah, that's amazing work. And I think each one is really great in showing different ways that a nonprofit could listen to this episode and take some of those gems back to their own work. Um, so the one about kind of the narrative of stories that you're telling, I like the first one a lot because it's more of an empowering story, especially in uh, when we're talking about Ebola. I think oftentimes it's a very negative connotation that comes with very sad um, and kind of negative pictures. But I think that one, one, spreads awareness about what it's like to live with Ebola and those who have experienced it, but to also an empowering narrative that often isn't told. I think the and second think one, that, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that about the Ebola thing is also interesting because I think like, you know, a lot of times organizations will get very stuck in their own specific story, mm. but there's a lot of ways to tell their story through other things that are happening. Yeah. So to kind of think a little bit outside the box when it comes to that, and really like consider stuff that you can just tell one person's story mm. and get so much out of it in terms of an NGO being able to communicate to an audience. Yeah, I love that. That's <laughs> a great gem. Somebody write that down. <laughs> yeah, and I especially like the last one too because it's not necessarily work that you've done yourself but more of a collective effort, um, which I think nonprofits with a wide community and a strong community can really benefit from. Um, using their own community to tell their own stories, um, 
podcast episodes, videos, research, things like that. Um, yeah. And it's, it actually leads a lot into the work that I'm currently focusing on now because I was half and half doing like stories of my own and then doing this on uh, workshops. But now with the pandemic, I mean, I'm just focusing on the workshops. And for me, the workshops are essentially what like that that product of empowering girls to go out in the, in the community or for themselves to to show their own stories is exactly the kind of thing that more organizations should have they should be able to elevate the story skill storytelling skills of their team so that they can help them tell their stories because i can come in and do a story for you and it will do you know it'll be great visuals or great video or whatever like this but at the end of the day, if I don't leave the people there with more skills, then I'm doing a disservice mm. because uh, I think that like they're going to be your best eyes and ears. And yes, they're not going to be uh, you know a photojournalist by tr- they're not going to train to be a photojournalist. But if their skills are you know, like at a, let's say at a, at, out of a 10 scale, like at a two, and I can help to improve that to like a five or a six, then an organization can use those assets every day to tell their stories better. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to be perfect anymore. Like, you know, these social platforms are made for, you know, raw stories. We just have to be true and authentic. And like that, if that comes across and, you know, you have the good visuals to go with it because you have some, uh, you know, understanding of how to do that, then, you know, you've just, you've, you've just gone like sky high. Yeah. I love that. And I think that kind of bleeds into another question that I have about advice for nonprofits who want to take their visuals to the next level, whether that's through photos and videos from people in their community or even a simple Canva edit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of things that happen with NGOs is the pain point is also time, right? Like, so in terms of like, how do I put this into my schedule? How do I even deal with this? I don't even know how to, where to start. And like, you know, it's just too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So a lot of work that I do is about trying to give those basic skills. So you don't have to think about it all the time because you're, you feel more confident, but like the first thing I always ask people is what is your, who is your audience? Mm-hmm. And what is your goal in that? And mm-hmm. so you can figure out what platforms you should be focusing on by asking who your audience is. Like if you're looking for an older audience, maybe Facebook is your way. If you're looking to, you know, go for adolescence, TikTok, you know, or YouTube, like all these things. So you have to think about that first because that will guide how you collect the media for these things. And then not to focus on everything at the same time, because honestly, you just won't, you'll stop. Like you, people will be like, I can't. And then it just becomes like too much of a headache. And then it, it goes like, they just stop and they don't do it. So like just having that. And then what's the goal? Is your goal more engagement? Is your goal to, you know, eventually have a call to action, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, newsletter or donations or, you know, just more better understanding of the projects that you're doing. So to know what you're goal is, even if it's not going to be translated in everyday messages, knowing that will help guide you. And then like, you know, with that, you know, that will not make it feel less overwhelming because you have a specific like way to go forward. And then, you know, when you've gotten that far and then like doing like a little bit of skill building, 
with those kind of things in mind and like having some checklists about what you're looking for, mm. that's really uh, helpful. And then the final thing that like also I do a lot of work on is trying to help people communicate that to their teams. So mm. it becomes very organic. So you really need to have like a conversation about this. So it's not something that's just like a one-off but that is integrated into, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to give it to the communications manager so that they can put it mm -hmm. out or like, how can we get this so that it becomes more of, you know, an everyday process that isn't so crazy or feel like I can, you know, have to devote hours to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm someone who works on the ads team. So I love <laughs> the idea of knowing who your audience is and what's your goal. Um, and I think that oftentimes, these stories, these visual storytellings are a great asset in end of year fundraising, which a lot of mm -hmm. nonprofits focus on. Do you have any advice on the kinds of visuals that work well with that kind of end of year giving, or if there's even a one size fits all for that? Yeah. I mean, it just depends on what your end of year giving looks like. Is it a mm -hmm. gala? Is it, you know, I mean, not in non-COVID times, is it like a brochure? Is it a book? What is it that you're doing to, to do that. So again, it's like, what's your goal, right? And where is that going is the thing that will guide you first and foremost with that. I mean, I, we work uh, when I've been with my organization and now by myself, I, I do work with Search for Common Ground and they typically have an end of year gala. Um, they bring together a lot of different things and they um, they're a really good example of like thinking outside the box and every year trying something a little bit different in terms of their storytelling. The first thing I would say is give yourself enough runway. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> that. Um, because a lot of times, uh, you know, people will come to us last minute and they're like, oh, we just need these things, but we need it like next week. And you're like, well, there's limited things we can do with that. And if yeah. you come and you give us a, you know, give me like a brainstorming moment, like a couple of months out, mm -hmm. then we can really figure out how to best, you know, give your, your donors that look. And uh, so like last year, Search for Common Down did this awesome thing. They were in the New York Public Library and they had these huge columns and they did verticals. So mm -hmm. they sent us um, all over um, South, like Africa and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, to do a vertical video and photos that they then had all around photos that they were like life size and it was like a front and back thing. So it was very, uh, you know, touch like hands-on thing. And then the, the videos were all vertical and it was, it was amazing. And it was because like, um, I've had enough interaction with them over the years that they're, they know, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's like good to have the conversation first and then, you know, think about this stuff and be able to, to do it and produce it. So, um, yeah, I'd always say like, think about what your end result is, what you're looking for, and then give yourself enough time to produce that. Well, it might seem obvious, but it's surprising how many places don't do that. Yeah. End of year comes before you know it. And then it's Thanksgiving and you're like, oh, I need donations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you have the good assets on, on me, on social media, you can build up to it. Like mm -hmm. you're, you don't just like ask for donations, 
you know, like that. Mm -hmm. You you created a warm audience by having everyday interactions or every other day interactions with your audience so that they really care about you. Like that's the mm -hmm. point. That's the deliverable that I'm saying. Like you want your super fans and your brand ambassadors to be there and be your like people that are promoting you to get your stuff out there even more. So if you give them the caring and that interaction, then they're going to do that. And like, that's really like the most amazing thing. And to me, it's like why I do what I do. Like you are promoting that message. People are coming in and doing it for you. And like, you're, you know, doing better in the world because you're reaching more people. So, you know, just making sure you're like reach you're really reaching people before you're that ask, really creating yeah. that warm audience and getting those visuals so that you can do that. Yeah. It's a holistic process, really. Um, you can't just yeah. kind of ask for donations. Like you said, like that, it's creating that warm audience, interacting with your audience, making sure that they trust you. They know who you are. They know what your mission is. And from there, um, then creating those visuals, having that runway <laughs> into the exactly. end of your giving. Awesome. Um, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom. Um, I think we have a lot of great gems in here. I'm really excited to have chatted with you. I mean, I think like you guys do great work and, uh, you know, I feel like any sort of small help, it can be in terms of visual storytelling with NGOs. Like it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a win-win. Yeah. Awesome. But we're not done yet. <laughs> now we'll move on to our rapid fire round. Ah, yes. That's right. Yes. It's my favorite part of any episode. Um, I just okay. think it's a great time to have a little bit of fun, talk about things we might not have talked about during the episode. So I'll ask you a series of questions. It's rapid fire, um, but no pressure to keep it totally rapid. <laughs> Got it. Are you ready? I am. Cool. What's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Um, one tech tool in the last year, I've been using, uh, the Pomodoro technique, which is oh. a tool to help you keep track, like very focused on something. Yeah. And I found that is almost like, um, it's, it's very helpful to, you know, put your list in at the beginning of the day, see how much time, mm -hmm. everything you think is going to take. And then, you know, at the end of the day, really realistically how things have gone, but it, it really helps me stay on track and really understand like, if I'm thinking something takes like, you know, only 25 minutes, but it actually takes an hour and a half. Um, mm. So it's super helpful, even though it's super basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely tried it a few times, although I find myself just looking at the clock, <laughs> seeing how much time is until my next one. <laughs> yeah, that could happen too. <laughs> um, are there any tech tool, tech issues that you're battling with? Um, my biggest tech issues um, is that I am working from home now. And so sometimes the internet goes out and the, sometimes there's power outages. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, not, not able to go to, to a cafe or things like that. So my tech issues are limited to that. Hopefully my computer still is okay. Everything else is okay, knock on wood. So no <laughs> big tech issues in terms of hardware. Although now I've said that, I jinxed myself. Um, but yeah, just in terms of uh, potential internet problems. Yeah, <laughs> that internet. It senses fear. <laughs> yes, it does. Like shark to blood to sharks and blood in water. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's coming in the next year that has you most excited? Um, well, the workshops that I'm doing online are super exciting because I feel like this is 
I feel like we're at a point now where uh, people realize that visual storytelling in their teams is not a nice to have, but a need to have. And so I'm really excited about the online workshops and coaching that I'm doing and also the speaking engagements for like online conferences. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Uh, Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? So I think that what I wasn't, I didn't realize was that photojournalism was more than a grainy, uh, grainy photo on a front of a newspaper uh, because I didn't come from a background of visual storytelling in my engineering career, I was like, no, it's not what I want. But when I did the women's stories and like people were really affected by that, someone said to me, no, that's photojournalism. And I was like, really? So I had been trying to not do that. And then at the end of the day, it was exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's, that's a great mistake. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I figured it out early. <laughs> Um, do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? Well, I mean, I think that you can transition to a lot of stuff. I mean, my creative agency closed last year Mm -hmm. and I think now I'm on to way more interesting things in terms of the services that I'm offering. So I feel like a lot of, especially now with the pandemic is going to be a reckoning for a lot of NGOs. Mm But it might mean that people shift. It might mean that ones close, but maybe it also means that they close and reopen in a different way that is more effective. So I do think they can successfully close. Yeah. I always get a ton of different answers to that one, but I think that's my favorite so far. Off the record, off the record. (laughs) Let's just say you had a hot tub time machine going back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? love that it's a hot tub time machine. It's like instead of just the time machine, it's like, I'm just going to cool, hang out and have a beer in my hot tub while I'm going back and telling myself something. <laughs> um, travel. Exactly. If I had a hot tub time machine and I went back to tell myself something, I think I would say that always um, don't worry so much about the thing that's directly in front of you. If you mess up once if you can always find different ways to tell a story and you know expand that idea and also just you know your professionalism will be able to be your calling card you're you know you show up you do the job you get you put all your energy into it and so you know those kind of like things that you think you're going to make mistakes on they're part of the process and it's just going to make you better in the end, but uh, you know you fret about them at the time beyond belief, and it's not worth it. Yeah. What's something you think you or your organization should stop doing? Well, as a photojournalist, I think part of what we should stop doing is always assuming that we should fly people in. Mm-hmm. I do think there is added bonuses sometimes to an outsider coming in and telling a story because you're seeing things that other people wouldn't. But to assume that you people on the ground can't be your eyes and your ears or can't be trained to do that, where there's just not enough, uh, there's not enough value, I think is something that is changing, especially now to see. 
um, but something that I've been advocating for for a while. So I love my work and I love traveling and I hope I get to do it, but I also hope that there's more people who do the same thing and can tell their stories better than me telling them who's gonna come in and do it. So I think that it should be a more of a balance than it is. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? <laughs> well, I'd start paying people better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least it's not not necessarily in the NGO world, but as, a, as photographers, sometimes like it becomes an add-on and it's not necessarily... That may not be exactly what I would say if I had a Harry Potter wand. I think I would say if I had a Harry Potter wand, I would make people understand that trust, when you trust an organization and you gain that trust, um, that, that you, you don't have to, um, you don't have to worry that like there's, uh, you know, all the fake news and everything out there that you can really put your trust in certain organizations. So to make those organizations in my Harry Potter wand stand out and be really, um, the highest tier that people look at and really respect and that they couldn't be touched mm. so that you could really say that's a shining example and mm. you know no one could could um, take them down from that that would be my harry potter moment <laughs> yeah that's great um i think photographers can also feel your pain on being paid a little more too <laughs> Yeah, that too. I mean, it's, but the thing is like, you know, photography is one of those things that you need to now adapt to the world of being more, uh, you can't just do just photography and, and that's fine too. I mean, it, it keeps us on our toes. I love Instagram. I love that people are always saying, oh, I, you know, I have all this photos on my Instagram account because then it means everyone is involved in photography. So, you know, in the way that has made it more of a general experience, and then also means that, you know, photographers have to adapt and, and, and do more things. Yeah, definitely. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or a board member? My favorite question is to ask them what's your goal because mm-hmm. as i was saying before they uh you know they don't always think about the things that they're trying to do some people will come to us and be like we want to do like vr and da 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 and you know have all these cool things and i'm like but who who are you reaching what's your goal oh we want to reach refugees and i'm and i'm like ah then virtual reality may not be what you should be focusing on, you know, because that's not where best spaces that they're going to necessarily be in. So um, it's amazing how that little question can really spark a lot of things in terms of, you know, you think you've thought of that answer, but when you really like specifically say, okay, what's your storytelling goal? What's your goals in this specific area? It really, um, I have had some really aha moments with a lot of uh, clients just asking that very simple question. Yeah. And how did you get started in the social impact space? So I got started in the social impact space when I did my first um, story about women activists and Mm -hmm. reproductive rights. And um, I had, you know, these portraits blown up and I did like a little gallery show in New York. And um, because I was so passionate about my work, people really responded to it. 
and cared deeply about it. And uh, even now, I mean, that was over 15 years ago, I still get requests for those photos. Um, and that's amazing to me because like no other work I've done has really had that length. And it's kind of shows the trajectory of like, you know, the work that I'm doing is just like, if you really care about something, then it becomes important to everyone. But that was like the social, because it was women's issues and very important to me, um, you know, that really drew me in and made me feel like I could make a difference in elevating those stories and helping organizations to, to be better storytellers. Yeah, that's amazing. What's a piece of advice your parents gave you that you did or did not follow? Um, my parents told me not to worry so much about what I did in college because it wouldn't necessarily affect what I did with the rest of my life. Um, so both of them had studied things in undergrad that they didn't actually end up doing with their lives. Yeah. And so when I realized <laughs> as an engineer that I didn't want to be an engineer and I wanted to be a photographer, uh, <laughs> I felt confident that it was okay to do that. Now, were they a little bit like crazy, like that? You know, our daughter has gone off the deep end. Yes, because they never <laughs> expected that I would become a photographer, visual storyteller. But yeah. you know, they supported me nonetheless, and they're very happy with the stuff I do. But yeah, it was definitely um, a very good piece of advice from my parents. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. And my last question, which is usually my favorite, is: What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? I would say to so to college grads that you have to really care deeply about what you're doing and have something that you is passion makes you drives you your passion in this and that it's something that you do be, you do this because you want to make a difference um, and that you should I didn't go to school for what I ended up doing but when I made contacts. I continued that relationship for a very long time. So you never know what people will end up being important down the road and you never, never burn a bridge and always make sure that you are following up with those people because if you're, if they're doing something interesting, then, you know, it could lead to something else. So just, you know, follow your passion and, uh, keep up with your contacts. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> um, so that's about it for my rapid fire questions. Thank you for participating. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, my favorite part. And that's about it for the show. Um, where can people find you? My consulting website is taratw.com, T-A-R-A-T-W.com. And my photography website, if you'd like to see more of my work, is taratwphoto.com. So very easy to remember. And I love brainstorming and I love hearing what people are doing. So please feel free to get in touch. I really enjoy the energy that comes from those things. So, you know, I have a contact me on the websites and please just get in contact if you want to discuss something or feel like you could use a little bit of energy in terms of how to do your visual storytelling. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tara. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us.
Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 